At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, the first 11 verses. Let's listen now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5 as we focus our attention upon verse 6 and verse 8 and verse 10. And I think you'll be able to pick up the common theme here. Verse 6, Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Then verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You can see there the emphasis in each case upon God's reconciling love for His people. That those whom God has saved through the Lord Jesus Christ and those whom He has yet to save between now and the final day of judgment are those who when He saved them were without strength. They were ungodly. When God demonstrated His love towards us, we were still sinners, and we were enemies at the moment when God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. These are precious verses for us to memorize, to contemplate, to take in, 
Now, last Sabbath, we considered the overall context here, and we saw how these statements fit into the apostle's argument as he's seeking to deal with various objections and temptations to doubt the hope that is set before us here, uh, that hope that God will deliver us and give us final perseverance, that those who have believed in Christ will persevere to the end, and they can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that they will overcome tribulations, and so on and so forth. And one of the temptations is that our sin gets in the way. You see, God saved me back then, but now I've sinned against Him here and now. Will God reject me? As we've been singing of David's repentance in Psalm 51, what is it that persuaded him that God wouldn't take away his Holy Spirit, that God wouldn't damn him and condemn him, one whom initially God had anointed and set his love upon and said, it's a man after my own heart. But when David failed, uh, why was David so persuaded that God would not cast him away forever? And we saw that it was God's love, His reconciling love that persuaded David to come and confess his sin with confidence, receiving God's mercy and His grace. And so here we find the Apostle Paul seeking to give us ammunition as believers as we battle doubts and temptations. And he equips us with a knowledge and an assurance of God's love. And he says, listen, if you think your sin yesterday or today or last week or the sin that you may commit in the future, that if you think that that sin is going to completely unravel your salvation and disqualify you from eternal life, recognize this, that when God saved you at the beginning, you were without strength, you were ungodly, you were a sinner. Indeed, you were an enemy, a hater of God, fighting against God. And yet, God saved you under those circumstances. So how much more can you expect that God will give you final perseverance? He won't cast you off. He will continue to forgive you and sanctify you and to give you a, ultimately a victorious, triumphant entrance into heaven. And so that's the context here. He's speaking to believers saying God's not going to cast you off because He's already saved you uh, in a situation where you were far worse. I mean, if God was in the business of casting people off because they offended Him, He never would have taken you on in the first place. That's the argument here. But the fact is that though that argument is important and, and these verses are subservient to that overall theological point, the fact is in another sense, these statements in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, we could say that everything Paul's saying in this entire epistle is subservient to these types of statements. These statements, if we take a step back, are some of the most powerful statements of who God is, of His love, of His mercy, of His faithfulness, and of the love of God in Christ for all of His people. And so we need to, we need to grapple with these things, in, not out of context, but in the broader context of the Word of God. And we also need to grapple with them mindful that there are yet 
sinners that need to be saved. And these verses are the sorts of verses that display to the unconverted what they're missing out on and what could be theirs if they would simply receive this reconciling love of God. This is what salvation is. This is what it offers. This is the Gospel that not only tells us what we have already as Christians, but it also welcomes us to enjoy in in believing for the first time and receiving salvation through Christ. And so we're going to be looking at it especially in that latter sense this morning. Simply getting back to the basics of the Gospel and urging those who have not yet received Christ to receive Him. And urging those believers that perhaps have gone astray from this message to experience it afresh. You know, this is something that often happens for believers. We become Christians and we're amazed at how God would love a wretch like me. And then we get a little deeper and we start to study the Bible and we start to learn about theology. And rather than that theology, well, in a sense, it sanctifies us in some ways, but, but in another sense, we can become proud and we can forget what we were when God saved us and we can trade in that humble reliance upon God for something else that's toxic. And we can begin to view verses like this as, well, yeah, that's important for all those unconverted people, but you see, for me, I'm learning about all these, these other things. All these deep theological truths and ethical distinctives, and I'm out there fighting the battles of the Lord against the wicked in the culture. And we can almost begin to come to verses like this and say, ooh, I feel a little uncomfortable isn't the love of God here a little bit too free and a little bit too lavish? And maybe we need to attach some strings to it and rein it in and put it on a leash just a little bit so that people won't get the wrong idea, you see. Because this type of free and full message of love and grace that God lavishes upon those who are powerless, godless, Uh, sinners, enemies, if we speak of the love of God for those kinds of people, you see, well, it's just going to empower them to continue in sin. As if the love of God somehow empowered people to continue in sin. Quite the opposite. It's the love of God that draws the prodigal back to the Father's house. And it was the love of God that drew David in Psalm 51. Not only the love of God, understand, but part of it was as he's convicted of sin, the love of God is the basis of his plea for forgiveness. Uh, We see it throughout the Scriptures. But in any event, we need to get back to this, even if we're Christians, and celebrate it. Now, the first thing that we need to understand here when we look at a verse like verse 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us. God demonstrates His own love toward us. It can be so easy to jump in and say, well, let's talk about the love of God. But that's not the first place to start. We need to start with who is God. Because there are a lot of people that come to a verse like this and they say, well, what a wonderful verse. God demonstrates His own love towards us. Well, uh, who is God? Let's talk about who God is first. Because there are a lot of gods running around out there. As Paul says, Lord's many, God's many in heaven and earth. There's one true God, but there are many false gods. And so we need to ask, what God are we talking about here? Which God are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the one true God of the Bible. 
the triune God, Jehovah, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. This is the God who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that they contain. God is the creator, and He made mankind in His own image and likeness. As our children learn in the catechism, with dominion over the creatures, we reflect God. Mankind has uh, dominion, authority over this earth, over this world that He's given to us. But you see, God has stamped His image upon mankind. Now, through sin, that image has been defaced in many ways. But the fact of the matter is that we reflect God. Uh, We have minds. We think. We are ethical creatures. We have a conscience. That conscience, again, is disordered by sin, even as our minds are disordered by sin. But God has a mind. We have a mind. God is a God of righteousness and truth, and we have a concept, inescapably so, of what is right or wrong, what is true or false. Unlike the beasts that perish around us, mankind has something unique that reflects the Creator, and God has also made us inherently religious. Though we profane the holiness in which we were created, yet there's something unique and set apart about mankind. You go to any nation, any uh, piece of real estate on planet earth, and you will find people worshiping someone, something beyond themselves, Uh, even if it's worshiping idols. But the concept of worship and religion is there, indelibly stamped on the human mind and heart. And we've been created in God's image in the sense God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We've been created uh, as creatures that have love relationships of husband and wife and parents and children and grandchildren. And so in so many ways, God has made us to be like Him. Not that we could attain to God's ultimate eternity, His infinite nature, His unchangeable nature, that we could ever be infinite God or something, but we reflect God's glory, or we ought to. And God has given us a rule by which we can reflect His glory. He's given us ethical commandments and principles that govern our reflection of who He is. These laws and commandments reflect His character and they set in place, they set in motion our marching orders as His image bearers for how we ought to reflect His character and be like Him. And these commandments are summarized in the Ten Commandments given to Israel at Mount Sinai. And so God is the Creator. He's the Lawgiver. He's given us the first four commandments dealing with our relationship to Him that we ought to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength so we don't have any other gods, either the gods of false religion or the gods of modern materialism, uh, money and power and self. We don't have any other gods. We give Him His just due as the only God. We worship Him, trust Him, devote ourselves to glorifying and enjoying Him. We worship Him with the ordinances of worship that He has prescribed and not our own devices and preferences. We reverence His holy name. We pray, hallowed be Thy name. We don't take it in vain, OMG, and and all sorts of other profaning of God's name. That is forbidden. We keep 
His day holy. God says that He wants to spend time with us, and He's set apart, aside from various other times, perhaps in your personal daily prayer life and family worship, but He's set aside one day in seven in which we're to gather together and worship with God's people and spend the day in seeking Him. And we've got more things that we can do in seeking Him than we have time for in any given Sabbath day. Uh, It's a blessed day. It's a sacred day. It's a day of rest and a day of worship. And it it enables us to uh, honor God and love God in a tangible way at a specific time, which is so important. And then we have the last six commandments. We have our duty to respect authority that God has set up in the family, church, and state. Ultimately honoring God's authority, but in the Lord submitting to our parents or our elders or civil officials. And we also have uh, the commandment not to murder, which means not only that we don't unjustly take the life of our neighbor, but it also means that we seek to promote the well-being of ourselves and others uh, with our actions, our attitudes, our words. We shouldn't be angry unjustly or lose our temper or show bitterness toward our neighbor. We shouldn't engage in name-calling and verbal attacks and these kinds of things. Uh, We should promote the well-being of our neighbor. And, uh, of course, that does preclude the literal physical shedding of blood through abortion, through unjust wars, through just plain uh, fighting and quarreling and physically harming others. Uh, It's also true that we're commanded to to reverence the sacredness of sexuality as God has created it in the marriage relationship. Uh, Adam and Eve were joined together as one in a covenant of marriage and physical sexual intimacy was limited within the confines of of the, the safekeeping of that marriage relationship. And so one man, one woman, any other type of Uh, relationship involving sexual thoughts, words, or actions outside of that perfect institution of God, the the marriage relationship, is forbidden. And so pornography and lusting after people walking down the street, uh, all kinds of examples of lustful words, flirtatious words, things that should not be happening, physical affection outside of marriage, in a sort of sensual way, these things are forbidden by God's law. Fornication people to people that aren't married, engaging in sexual intimacy or, or adultery, uh, homosexuality, so on and so forth. God the lawgiver has established marriage and it is an exclusive institution in that sense. Also, Uh, The fact is, we ought to respect the property rights of others. Uh, We ought not to take what is not ours. Uh, We ought not to covet what what is not ours and then seek to take it. And we ought to always speak the truth in love and not seek to deceive others. So, So there are these ten commandments that God has given to us and we find that we have broken them. We've lusted after many things that are not ours. We've been discontented, disgruntled, unhappy, covetous. We've stolen, we've lied, we've lusted. uh, And that's just our duty toward man. 
We've disrespected and dishonored and disobeyed authority. We have not kept the Sabbath holy. We've incorporated all kinds of things and made excuses. Um, You know, it's the playoffs and all these things. We have broken the law of God in countless ways. And we have demonstrated that we don't love God the way we ought to. And we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. God is the lawgiver. And, and yet, God is love. 1 John 4.16 tells us that God is love. When Moses asked to see and experience the glory, the glory of the Lord, he says, Lord, show me your glory. The Lord declared his name to Moses who was in the cleft of the rock and God passed by Moses and declared his name and said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. He said that the Lord forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So God is love. God is love. He's a loving God. He shows goodness to His creatures. He shows saving love through forgiving the sins of His people. God is love. But we have to understand something about the love of God, and that is that Psalm 33.5 tells us that the Lord loves righteousness, or we could say justice. Same word in Hebrew. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. And so when we speak of the love of God, or that God is love, we're not saying that He's not holy and that He's not just. We're not denying that He's super sensitive to all forms of sin. Not not super sensitive in the sense you would say that about somebody. Oh, He's super sensitive. But God is intensely, legitimately sensitive to sin. He can't, his eyes cannot even behold iniquity. He can't wink at it. He can't ignore it. He sees it and He will judge it. And so that same declaration of God's glory when Moses was in the cleft of the rock, it not only says everything that I mentioned there, but also by no means does He clear the guilty. Uh, He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Why? Because He's love and He loves righteousness. And so we need to reckon with this. It creates something of uh, an apparent contradiction, something of a conundrum here that God is love and He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He loves sinners, but also He loves righteousness and He cannot deny His principles of justice and righteousness because they are intrinsic to His being and to His character. So God is love, but God is holy and just and He's angry with the wicked every day. This is who God is. So when we say God demonstrates His own love towards us, Understand we're dealing with not the God that we've chiseled out in our own image, not the God that we feel comfortable saying, well, I'll stand before that God and on judgment day he'll just look the other way because he's a merciful God. It's the God of love and holiness and justice. It's a God that you can't easily uh, reckon with in your own mind until you've come to grips with this gospel that Paul is proclaiming. Well, secondly, we ask, 
Whom does God love? Whom does God love? And Paul makes it clear in this passage that it's not the righteous and it's not the good. God does not love righteous and good people in themselves. Uh, You can see this very clear in verse 6, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. See, Paul's using a a sort of a, not a sermon illustration, because this is an epistle, not a sermon, but he's using an illustration here. He's saying in real life, sometimes people will love other people and give their lives for them. And we can think of uh, soldiers on the battlefield sacrificing their own lives. Maybe a particular soldier sacrificing his own life to save the battalion. That is something that happens. That is something that happens. Parents might give their life to save their child or something like that. Uh, it's, It's rare. It scarcely happens. If you see it in the news, you're amazed by it, right? Especially in our day where fewer and fewer people seem to have any regard for the lives of others. I mean, people are killing their own children and so on and so forth. But even in a day when natural affection has almost seemed to run dry, there are a few cases, rare cases, scarcely it does happen, that somebody will die for a righteous man, a good man. Again, you can think of someone... Um, you know, perhaps who is uh, in the secret service and they're, they're serving a particular president and they come to love that president. They respect that president. They think that president has this great agenda. Uh, I suppose some of the people in, in the secret service are just maybe doing it for the money. I don't know. But, but they, he would give his life for the president whom he respects and honors and desires that he would continue on in his capacity as the leader of the country. That can sometimes happen. Dying for a righteous person, someone that you respect, someone that you can honor in that way, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Good here meaning probably not just morally good, someone that has not done something where you say, well, I'm just, you know, well, we'll, that guy, you know, made his bed, let him sleep in it kind of thing. But you actually revere the person as a good person and perhaps even connoting the idea of a generous person, someone who's given generously to so many other people and now they're in danger and your, your heart is moved to help them and defend them and even if necessary, give your life in order to protect them. Perhaps for a righteous or a good person, somebody might dare to die, but that's not what God does through Christ in the gospel. He doesn't shower his love on honorable people that he respects and desires to, to honor in this way or to protect them because they're so beneficial to himself or to others. Rather, God loves the unlovely, the ungodly. He loves enemies and he loves sinners. Those who not only He should not die to save, but in one sense, according to His strict justice, there's something of a sense that He ought to crush them and destroy them, but He doesn't. He loves them. 
and he gives his life as a ransom for them. Whom does God love? He loves, we're told, the ungodly. That word means profane, godless, someone who, similar to what uh, the psalm says, that God is not in all his thoughts. Or in other words, uh, all his thoughts are there is no God. Or another translation, God is not in his thoughts. God is nowhere in his thoughts. He doesn't give a second thought to God. And yet, God gives His Son for that ungodly sinner. It's unbelievable, really. A profane, godless idolater. Most people that are ungodly, that have no time for God, no interest in His ordinances of worship, no interest in His Word, in prayer, uh, unless they're really in a predicament, or they're sick, or they're dying. They have very little interest in God. Why? Because they are idolaters. We have iPhones and iPads. Well, here we have idolatry. Me, myself, and I. They're consumed with self. They've made themselves into the God of their own universe. They've made themselves the center of the galaxy and everything revolves around them and they have no time for God, no time for His worship, for His people, for His gospel. No time at all. They're ungodly. And yet, we're told in verse 6, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is scandalously shocking. Also, it says He died for or He loves sinners. Sinners. Uh, We've already spoken of the Ten Commandments, but let me just list some sins that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1. After mentioning idolatry, and uh, humanism and various sexual perversions. He goes on in verse 29 of Romans 1. This is a list of sins and of sinners. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy. So you're bitter at other people because they have certain things that you don't. I hope he chokes on it. Something like that. Envy. Murder. Strife. Deceit. Evil-mindedness. Whisperers. Backbiters. Haters of God. That can mean blasphemers of God. Not just a hatred in the heart, but again, profaning God's holy name. Violent. Proud. Boasters. Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. In other words, they silence their conscience, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Let me give you one other example of what it means to be a sinner. Uh, The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's be more concrete than that. 2 Timothy 3, speaking of perilous times, seasons of wickedness and sin in the world. Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves. There's that idolatry. Lovers of money, boasters. Right? Social media. Let me show you how good I look and what everything that I'm doing. And boasters. Proud. 
Blasphemers, disobedient to parents, children. Is there any child here who would say, I've never been disobedient to my parents? Unthankful. Uh, the Bible says in Psalm 103, we ought to forget not God's benefits. How unthankful we've been. Unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Listen to this, for, for religious people, those of us that are religious, having a form of godliness, the external, the exterior, the institution, the ordinances of godliness, but denying its power. From such people turn away, Paul says. And by that he means don't be like them. Don't encourage them. But isn't it amazing that God had every right to turn away entirely from each and every one of us as ungodly sinners, and yet He has demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still on that list, Christ died for us. Enemies. You go further down, verse 10, if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God. What does it mean to be an enemy of God? Very few people, I think if you did a survey, would, would say, yes, I'm an enemy of God. You know there would be some. There are some people that just feel the need to, in a sort of histrionic way, starting these um, uh, devil-worshipping clubs in the local high school and these kinds of... But the fact of the matter is, in our heart of hearts by nature, though we may not wear it on our sleeve like the devil-worshipper, uh, there is a hatred and an enemy, uh, an enmity against God in every one of us by nature. Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the heathen nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's against God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. So the kings of the earth, the nations and cultures of the world are opposed to God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, we're seeing this confirmed here that while we were enemies, okay, but notice what marks that opposition to God. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. That's a reference to God's law. Remember we said God is the Creator. We reflect His image and He's given us appropriate commandments so that we can have a guide and so that we can have an authoritative set of marching orders as His image bearers to reflect His glory. But they don't view it that way, you see. They don't view it, we don't by nature view it as a law of liberty that enables us to be victorious and and triumphant in conquering sin and overcoming temptation. We don't give thanks for the law of God and and speak of it as that which revives and renews our soul and that which God writes on our hearts so that we can know Him in greater intimacy and, and so on and so forth. We don't view His law as something that liberates us from the shackles of sin. Rather, we view it as bonds and cords, as handcuffs. And, and we, we, we want to get out of those handcuffs 
of God's commandments so that we can live according to the lusts that will then inevitably enslave us in our utter foolishness. Enemies, does that describe you? What's your attitude toward God's commandments? What's your attitude toward when God says, do this, don't do that? When God says, uh, don't look lustfully, don't do something that's outside of the parameters of spiritual rest and worship on the Sabbath, don't harbor bitterness and speak evil words about other people. When God says that, or when He says, read your Bible and pray and help those in need and be generous to others and forgive those who've sinned against you. When God gives you these duties or these prohibitions, do you view it as an entanglement and as a restriction on your life? That is enmity against God. In fact, that's what Romans chapter 8 tells us. Romans 8 verse 7, the carnal mind is at enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, he says. Enemies of God and of His law. Powerless. Powerless. Whom does God love? He loves those who are powerless to redeem themselves out of their own predicament. Powerless to save themselves. Powerless to do certain good works, you see, to even out the scales and to balance the ledger. No ledger. No. Powerless. Powerless. Without strength. It was, in, it, it was when we were without strength that the Lord saved us. Dead in trespasses and sins. How much strength does a dead man have? None. We were without strength. Dead in trespasses and sins with an eternal weight of God's wrath awaiting us in heaven or in hell that we have no way of bearing except to spend eternity there. No way to carry and bear and exhaust and do away with that eternal weight of wrath. No ability to carry the weight of the commandments of God that we might gain heaven. Powerless to save ourselves and destined for eternal destruction. There wasn't anything that God saw in us. Some people think, well, uh, God saw some raw talent in me and He saved me, you see. These, uh, these celebrities that, that are converted and they, they're testimony, sadly, something almost gives the impression. God saw an opportunity. Here's someone who can really advance the kingdom. So I'm going to save that person, and then they're going to go out and be my witness. Uh, No, God saw us in a pool of blood, utterly without strength, powerless, unable to help His cause, dead in trespasses and sins, unable to help even ourselves. Ephesians 2 Verse 1, He made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now does that describe you? Does that describe you? 
Not the dead in trespasses and sins, because I know you probably would never speak of yourself that way, but, but the other parts that, that Paul incorporates into this description here. Does that describe you that you're just like the others? That you're like most other people? You're following the course of this world. You're not swimming upstream, but you're just going with the flow just as the others and you're conducting them yourselves in the lust of your flesh. Fulfilling the desires of your flesh. In other words, when you have an urge, you seek to satisfy it. And that's basically the rule and the governing principle in your life. You do what feels good. You do what you think would benefit you in some way. And that's basically your philosophy of life. I'm going to do what seems good to me, what's right in my own eyes, what seems beneficial and pleasant and pleasurable. I'm going to conduct myself according to my own desires, even the desires of my flesh. And, and you may feel empowered, but the Bible says you're powerless. You're a slave to sin. And you're a slave to your own carnal desires. And so you're powerless. Sin's guilt, sin's power unbelief, infinite wrath, you're powerless, you're without strength. Now we're told here thirdly, when God loves sinners. When does God love these ungodly, sinful enemies who are powerless? When does He love them? He doesn't love them after they're transformed, and we have to understand this. The love that's spoken of here, the love of sending His Son to save sinners, is not a love that comes after the sinner has been changed. It's not a love that comes after the ungodly person has been regenerated by the Spirit and made to to an extent godly. It's not after the person has been taken from being a child of wrath and an enemy of God and now they've been transformed. It's not after they've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't sit back and wait to love people that take the first step. God takes the first step. And so rather than loving them after these things are the case, He loves them beforehand. Beforehand. While we were still sinners. While we were still enemies. While we were yet powerless. That's when God loved us and that's when He sent His Son to die for our sins. Those of us, of course, that None of us were alive at the crucifixion, but the idea is God envisioned those for whom Christ died, and He sent His Son to die for them in love, and the love that He had for His people was a love extended to them considered as ungodly, sinful enemies that were powerless. That's the idea. Now, that's not to say that once God changes us and makes us a new creature, that then we have greater and greater experience of His love and now He looks at His handiwork and the good works that He's enabling us to do and it increases that love relationship, not denying that in any sense whatsoever. But this love, this redeeming love comes first. Now, how does God love sinners? Well, He loves sinners by demonstration and that's very important because we live in a world that the Proverbs tell us have many, many people proclaiming their own goodness. Every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find. Proverbs 20. 
uh, is it verse 6, I think. God doesn't extend to us a mere lip love, as Samuel Rutherford put it. It's not a mere lip love. It's not just words. But God demonstrates His own love. You know the difference between someone who says that they love you and who says that they care about you and someone who demonstrates it through their actions. Actions speak louder than words. And my friends, God has not merely spoken words. He has performed actions that reflect His love. By demonstration, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you're outside of Christ, understand that if you're brought to faith in Christ, if you exercise faith in Christ, this verse is speaking about you then. This is what is yours through faith in Christ. God's love demonstrated through the cross of Calvary. That demonstration was a demonstration that saves all who believe. And it's that demonstration being lifted up that the Bible says draws all men to the Savior. As it were, that's what draws you. If you're outside of Christ, you need to look to Christ being lifted up on the cross. Look to God sending His Son, the infinitely beautiful and glorious Son of God, the righteous and holy Son of God, bearing the sin of sinners on the cross. Look to that. Look to that as set before you in a lively way through the Gospel and recognize the extent of God's demonstration of His love even for those who, as it were, nailed the nails into His hands and feet. Even those who crucified the Lord of glory. The apostles preached the Gospel even to those who pierced Him, who crucified Him, who denied Him, who rejected Him. The Gospel went to the Jew first. And the the great commission of preaching the Gospel came first to Jerusalem, to the people who spit in His face, to the people who beat Him with rods, to the people who, uh, as it were, cried out for the Romans to crucify Him. Crucify Him. We have no king but Caesar. Ungodly. Sinners. Enemies. Enslaved to sin and without strength to save themselves. These Jerusalem sinners, we could call them, are a perfect example of God's saving love and of the significance of God sending His Son, hoisting Him up on the cross to bear the sins of many. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Scripture tells us that God so loved the world The same world a few verses later, it says that loves darkness and not light. The world that loves darkness because its deeds are evil. God so loved sinners just like that, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10 reiterates this message. It's throughout the Scriptures, but it says, in this the love of God was manifested toward us. Again, it's demonstrated. It's manifested. It's real. It's not just some sort of an idea or a principle. It's a real historical manifestation. It was manifested toward us that 
God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Why does it keep mentioning that God sent His only begotten Son? That He spared not His only Son. Why does it keep mentioning that? It keeps mentioning that, my friends, because the love of God is seen in this, that, that God the Father who enjoyed a beautiful, loving relationship with His Son from all eternity. The Father who has an infinite capacity to love and the Son who has an infinite loveliness. When these two, as it were, come together, it's it's infinite love and joy and delight over which the Holy Spirit is, as it were, the outbreathing of the Father and the Son in this beautiful, eternal relationship of love. God gave that Son to become man and to suffer a horrendous, cursed, painful, spiritually traumatizing death on the cross for the very types of people that put Him on the cross. That's the manifestation of God's love. He spared not His only Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, declared to His disciples in advance of this. He said, no one uh, has ever loved like this. Uh, Let me turn to John chapter 15. No greater love, He says, than this, than one should give up his life for his friends. John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus gave up his life willingly. Psalm 40 tells us that when when Jesus uh, considered his responsibility to go to the cross, he said, behold, I delight to do your will. He didn't delight in the pain in it, you know, for its own sake, of course, but for the joy set before Him. He did it, and He did it willingly. So that Paul can say, Galatians 2.20, Him who loved me and gave Himself for me. And we could cite numerous other verses, but let's, let's just be content with this one. Revelation 1.5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. That was painful. When the blood, I mean, to get the blood of Christ to flow, unspeakable agonies in His body, and yet... We're told He was actively engaged washing us through His blood. Reconciling us through His blood. Willingly showing us His love. Now how long does God love sinners? For how long does He love them? Uh, He sent His Son to die on the cross for sinners to reconcile them to Himself. But then you have these certain people in the Christian church that then say, well, but, but you see... You could be like Judas. You know, you could lose your salvation. Well, my friends, Judas didn't lose his salvation. He was the son of perdition. And the Bible says that God foreordained that he would make those foolish decisions to reject Christ. The fact of the matter is that when God sets his love on someone from all eternity, his love is from everlasting to everlasting. 
if He sent His Son to die for you and you've put your trust in Him and you've been saved and reconciled and justified and made right with God, the fact is that you not only are saved and have been saved, but you shall be saved. Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. So you can look at the final judgment which is yet to come and know for sure you'll be saved from that wrath that will come upon the unbelieving, impenitent world around you. And he goes on and says it again, verse 10, for when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You think Jesus saved you with His death. Paul says He's still saving you and will continue to save you as the high priest with an endless life ever living to intercede for you and bring you to final salvation. He's the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God's love in Christ is forever. Now to what end does God love sinners? Well, we're told He loves them for the purpose of reconciliation. In Eden, we sinned against God and became His enemies, but now He has reconciled us through the blood of His Son, Paul says. And so now through Christ, the enmity has been replaced with a covenant of friendship with the Lord. We have a relationship with Him. That's what reconciliation means. If you have a problem in a relationship in a friendship and there's enmity and then it's resolved and you're restored in that relationship okay that's what it's describing here on God's side Christ had to pay the infinite penalty for sin so that God could be reconciled on our side okay it's not as though anything was conceded to us to reconcile us to God but it's like in some cases where two people are at odds one side is legitimately at odds, and so God's legitimately at odds with us, so the penalty is paid, but our enmity against God is illegitimate. We have no reason to find fault with God and to be enemies of God. And so God, by the Holy Spirit, regenerates us, and we come to our senses and we're reconciled to God, realizing we had no reason to, to have a bone to pick in the first place. There is no unrighteousness in Him. We were entirely at fault, and so we're brought back into the relationship of intimacy where there's reciprocal love. It's called in Scripture a marriage. It's like parents and their children. We're reconciled through Him, through His blood, through His death. There's also, as I mentioned, recreation. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were ungodly and powerless, but you see, we're not ungodly and powerless sinners and enemies anymore. Christ has powerfully saved us. He's made us new creatures. And we can say with John Newton, I'm not what I should be or what I shall be when I'm perfected in heaven. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. I'm not what I was. I'm a new creature. I've been given a new heart, and I'm on a path of godliness unto glory. And God empowers us to that end. No longer are we without strength, but we're told, be strong in the might and strength of the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God. We're told we can do all things 
through God who gives us the strength, Christ who strengthens us. We have the power of godliness. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have the Spirit of God, the Almighty third person, the Trinity, living inside of us, and greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. And so God loves us to reconcile us, to recreate us, and to now empower us to reflect His image as we've been created to reflect it. Now finally, I'm wrapping up here, what is the proper response to this love? What is the proper response to this love? First, believe it and receive it. It has been manifested. It has been demonstrated. For God so loved the world. That word so should not be ignored. It's a tiny word, but it's of great significance because what it's saying is that God's love is not just love, but it's so great a love. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. In Greek, that, that verse in 1 John chapter 2 or 3, behold what manner of love is saying th- this love is from another world. It's an extraterrestrial love. It's a, it's a love that's beyond our categories for explanation. God so loved the world. Receive that love. Receive it. Affirm it. Believe it. Uh, we're told that when Jonah told the Ninevites God was going to destroy their city, they believed God and started responding. I'm saying, yes, believe in the judgment of God. But here, believe the love of God. Be like the Ninevites. Believe God. He says that this love is here. I believe it. I receive it. And I act accordingly. Second, abide in it. You may have believed in it and received it many years ago, but you need to keep yourself in the love of God. Jesus urges us, if we're to bear much fruit, to abide in His love and in His Father's love. John 15. We need to be thinking about it. We need to be reminded of it. We need to remember that God is love, so at no point should you ever be thinking about God when His love is distant from your thought process. God is love, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what doctrine you're considering, no matter what thing that you're thinking about in your mind, the love of God should not be far away because God is love. Thirdly, reciprocate that love. We love Him because He first loved us. Now, I am not saying that the only reason that God is worthy of being loved is that He saved us because, friends, if He had saved none of us, He would still be worthy of our love. He would still be infinitely lovely and lovable even if He had never created the universe, even if He had never saved anyone. But the fact is, the way in which we come to love Him is through His first loving us, giving His Son to to reconcile us to Himself, to pay the penalty for our sins, to merit heaven on our behalf. And when we see that demonstration of love, that's what uh, enables us to reciprocate that love. It warms us to the loveliness of God in Christ. And finally, imitate that love. Imitate that love. In your relationships with others, don't forget that you were a godless enemy and a sinner and powerless 
to overcome your sin and to save yourself. Don't forget who and what you were, because when you deal with other people that are sinning against you, you say, they're opposing me unjustly, and they're being ungodly, and they're sinning, and, and this, that, and the other. Understand, that's what you were doing to God, and aren't you glad that He doesn't treat sinners uh, that He saves in the way that some of us treat people that sin against us. Isn't it wonderful that God shows us a love that we can imitate that will take us to a higher plane of loving our enemies and, and forgiving those who sin against us? 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from Him that he who loves God must love his brother also. First uh, John 3.16 By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Uh, Jesus extends it even loving our enemies. Loving those who do evil against us. Uh, Ephesians 4 and 5 is replete with exhortations. Look it up for yourself. Love people as God has loved you. Imitate His love. Forgive others the way Christ has forgiven you. This is a constant theme. If God has reconciled you as a sinner, how much more ought you to show His love to those who sin against you? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your Holy Spirit who has given us the power of godliness and who has enabled us uh, to increasingly trample over the bellies of our lusts. And yet, even with that might and strength, we recognize it is entirely a gift of grace that not unto us, not unto us, but unto Your name be all glory and honor and praise. And we confess, O Lord, that if left to ourselves, we would remain in the pool of blood as enemies, sinners, ungodly, powerless, wretches, worthy of Your infinite damnation, judgment, and hatred. O Lord, we marvel at Your love. We pray that Your perfect love would cast out all fear and doubt. And that you would enable us to be filled with that love, overflowing with love for you and unconditional love for others. That we would even love our enemies. Yes, loving them in a different way perhaps than our close godly friends. But showing them love even as you shower them with sunshine and, and rain from heaven and many, many blessings. Enable us to follow your example and imitate your goodness and your kindness. For Jesus' sake, amen.